Hey everyone, I'm Julie Gunlock, host of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. For those new to the program, this podcast is focused on how parents should custom tailor their parenting style to fit what's best for their families, themselves, and most importantly, their kids. Today, I'm talking to Natalia Mukrop. Moo Rockford, a tireless and tenacious advocate for children. In 2020, she helped organize Keep New York City Schools Open and brought a lawsuit against New York City to reopen public schools in person and in teachers and with teachers in the classroom. Since then, she has launched several campaigns to raise awareness to the prolonged restrictions placed on children in the name of safety and the effects of COVID-19 mitigation on children. For the last few years, Natalia has been working on a documentary called 15 Days that covers the lost years of childhood due to the COVID-19 pandemic restrictions. Um, A description of that documentary is as follows, from closed schools to remote learning and Zooming in rooms to locked playgrounds, masked toddlers to silent school lunches, the way children have been treated in large swaths of the U.S. was shocking, painful, and incredibly harmful. I'm getting tears in my eyes just reading that because some of that stuff I forgot about. So thank you so much, Natalia. I have followed your career and many of the projects that you're doing, and I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on today. Thank you so much, and I've really been appreciative of your work as well. Well, let's get into this. First of all, I want to walk back. I want to talk, obviously, about the documentary. I want to talk about your own projects um, that you've you've engaged in over the years. But first, I want to talk to you about your activism specifically during COVID. When did you realize that the schools were not going to be reopened and that parents really needed to organize and get active? Um, In November 2020, uh, we were being threatened by Cuomo and de Blasio about rising case rates um, and red, orange, blue areas. I don't know. They were color coding neighborhoods and basically saying that if um, if New York City was going to reach a three percent transmission threshold, which, as I understood, it was even like a discrepancy in the state tracking um, system. It, it was just like its own thing and was very, you know, flawed. Um, they were going to shut the schools down again. And that seemed just like a no brainer. Like these kids had just come back to school September 28th, 2020, after having been shut out for many, many months. And um, as it was, they were only going part time. And each one of those days, each one of those hours was so precious. And I could see it amongst, you know, my own children and their friends, the ones who were there, um, that I, you know, I knew that I had to do something. And I ended up coming upon a Facebook group that had just been formed called Keep NYC Schools Open, although at that time, I don't even think it had a name. And it was just a really grassroots group of mostly moms and some dads from around New York City struggling with the idea that these schools were about to shut down again. I'm interested in this group that you were a part of um, initially and how they were treated by, and I'm, I, I suspect I know the answer to this, but I actually don't know your specifics. I was involved in a group, a similar group in my local area. Um, how was that group treated? Meaning when they realized the schools weren't going to open, when they would, and later on in this process, when we realized that kids were not in as much danger from COVID-19, uh, 
and through to the masking, how did local officials and school officials treat the parents that were voicing concerns about this? Well, they wouldn't engage with us, first of all. Um, I'll give credit to Mayor Adams, who at the time was, um, he's the New York City mayor now, but at the time in 2020, he was the Brooklyn Borough President. And I had had a relationship with his office previous to the COVID um, pandemic because I had advocated for healthy school food. And this has always been one of his great passions to bring scratch-based cooking to New York City schools. Um, So I reached out to them and asked if Mayor Adams, then Borough President Adams, would join us at one of our rallies. And he said yes. And he showed up and uh, we had a rally in front of de Blasio's mansion, Gracie Mansion. And uh, Adams was was yelling for schools to reopen, to keep NYC schools. When was that? November 25th, 2020. Oh, Wow. Because, I mean, schools were closed until the spring of 2021. So that is... Not in New York. New York, City, No, New York City schools reopened, I believe, on September 28th, 2020. Um, mm-hmm. De Blasio, for all his faults, and there are too many to name, um, did want the schools open and had uh, negotiated some sort of a deal with the U- U- United Federation of Teachers, the UFT, with Michael Mulgrew here in New York, that they would do these hybrid school days where some kids would go to school a couple of days a week, one week, and then three days the next, and they would observe social distancing, masked everything, you know, I mean, lots of restrictions. restrictive. Yeah, but- very restricted. But the schools did open September 28, 2020. Wow, that's that's actually amazing because here in Northern Virginia, they were closed until 2021. Um, there was some going back um, again in a in a sort of skip skip a day fashion um, in January, I believe it was January of 2021. It might have been a little bit earlier, but basically, and then it was highly restricted too. But we were out for longer than that. But it sounds like was 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 it was it Adams being a part of that or being willing? Did you? Adams was an anomaly. Okay. So he, you know, and, and there was only a limited amount of time that he was willing to answer our call. It was like for the first couple of rallies, you know, and then, and then eventually his, his uh, candidacy for mayor was announced and he obviously had other competing interests. Um, But he did join several rallies and especially one about uh, public school athletics. Um, We did team up with an organization called about you where we were at really, um, demanding that public school kids be allowed to compete against, you know, other uh, school kids like parochial school, private schools, schools across the border in Yonkers or Westchester or whatever were competing, but public school kids were shut out completely. But um, just to get back to your question about how (laughs) other um, uh, electeds reacted to us, they wanted no part of us. They um, engaged AstroTurf parent advocates um, Jumani Williams, uh, who was the, I think this, the advocate, the public advocate had town halls where it was, you know, these, these AstroTurf activists who wanted schools closed were probably on the teachers union payroll and called us white supremacists and uh, would rally when we rallied, they'd have counter rallies. They would, you know, say that we wanted dead teachers, that we right. didn't care, you know, the usual, it's the same playbook around the country. Right. And, and, uh, you know, dead teachers, dead grandparents, dead siblings. It was it was just the sort of um, 
catastrophic language that they would use uh, across the board was that was something we experienced as well. Um, kind so- of reminds me. It kind of reminds me of. Do you want a, a dead daughter or a live son? Right. It's the same. You know what, do you? It's interesting. Who said that? Do you remember? Um, I don't know who says that, but that's often. You I know, didn't know. I didn't know if that was something that ha- had happened in your community, but here here in Alexandria. We had a school board member meet with parents and said and said that ex- almost that exact thing, which was, you have to choose between a dead child and an educated child. It was so astonishingly cruel, wrong, tone deaf, and it, and just vicious um, that went viral. So that might be what you're remembering, but that was actually in my town of Alexandria, Virginia. And one smart parent had was recording it. And then she sent it on to Corey DeAngelis, who, as you know, has a big, uh, a big Twitter presence and is always sort of um, going after Randy Weingarten. And, um, and so it went viral. Yes, that is exactly what we were dealing with at that time. So I was actually thinking of the gender ideology, like, you know, just the, the way parents are approached now with, with the, you know, the threat, like you're, do you want a dead daughter or you, you must affirm kind of like. That's actually thing. very interesting because I wasn't, that didn't come to mind probably because I'm thinking of my local school officials who were just insane, but, um, but yes, you're right. It's the same. And that's, you, you meant mentioned astroturf groups, like it's all from the same playbook of demonizing parents, casting parents as not caring about their children or the community or the teachers or the, you know, schools. It's, it's sort of, it's interesting that you say that because it really is the same playbook that we saw then. Every every time. Yep. At what point did, um, did you did restore childhood and your involvement? Tell me the history of restore childhood and how it came to be in your involvement. Um, so after I heard that Randy Weingarten was the author, essentially, <clears throat> of the CDC guidelines to reopen schools and was the architect of the masking and the COVID restriction policies, um, I reached out to her on social media and asked her if she wanted to, to meet up to, to discuss you know, what the off-ramp might look like. And she had just done the AFT roundtable with Eric Hartman and uh, Michelle Walker of Open Schools and Jay Bhattacharya and Tracy Hogue. And um, it, it was very obvious from watching that, that she wasn't serious. Like she brought in two political scientists. We had two incredible researchers. There was no comparison between like the data versus the, you know, emotional strings right. that they were pulling. It was ridiculous. But I thought, you know, if she's willing to meet up, I'm, I'm willing to meet up. I, you know, I'll do anything. And so to her credit, she said yes. Um, and uh, we met for drinks in November of 2021 in New York City. And I had come to her to basically plead the case that children really needed to be unmasked. I could not handle even seeing my children in a mask for one more day. My nine-year-old, who at that time was like seven or six, had made her a little bracelet and like a little letter with a picture saying, this is what I look like masked. This is what I look like unmasked. It was very sweet. And uh, Randy was very gracious and we had a nice conversation. And by the end, she said... um, Well, she said, bring me your proposal for unmasking um, kids and getting things back to normal and I'll present it to the CDC. And I was like, 
okay, my proposal, my proposal is take their masks off, like, like, like and the mandates. Um, You're like, do you have a sticky note? I can write it down on a sticky note. I mean, it was just, it was, it was like, I'm nobody. I don't have a it's, medical it's also, It's also just like, can, can I also just say that that is very Washington speak. Bring me your proposal. That is, and I, to be honest, I mean, Natalia, I don't know anything about this part of the story. I'm really fascinated because I did not know that you had met with Randy Weingarten. So I will tell you that, I mean, you said she was very gracious. She was very nice. And she did meet with you to her credit, but she said this, like, send me your proposal. That's a, that is, that's a, a dismissal. That's, let me get out of this meeting so that you will then have to produce a proposal that I can then have somebody else say no to. Did you get that sense or did you think it was like she really cared? She asked me to tweet about having met with her and she would retweet it. So I could, I I immediately could tell that this was a PR move. This remember this was also November, 2021. And she had literally just cost the Virginia governor his seat. Yes. (laughs) This was days later. Yes. Um, and just for listeners who are not aware of this, what what Natalia just referenced, this is Terry McAuliffe, who is cannot be a more establishment Virginia, well, national figure. He's a national figure, very close with the Clintons and was um, Virginia. I live in Virginia. Virginia is a one term for governor state. OK, so Terry McAuliffe was governor um, and very popular governor. And he was, and so what you do in Virginia, if you want to run again, is you skip a year and then you run again, because you can't have consecutive years as governor. And he was running and everybody was like against Glenn Youngkin. And everyone thought it's, he's a shoe in. Cause I mean, he's just a very popular Virginia uh, politician. I mean, not to everyone. I certainly did not like Terry McAuliffe. And um, he got up during a debate and he said the magic words, which are parents shouldn't have anything to do with their child's curriculum. And it launched a million parent groups. And it, it, you know, really, um, that was what, because Glenn Youngkin, of course, was like, no parent should definitely have a role. And that's what is considered this sort of moment in history where the parent movement, again, was launched. And again, now Glenn Youngkin is the governor. Um, So I just want to give that background because some people might not be aware of the connection, which is very interesting that you bring up because that that wasn't even enough. She ends up showing up and like lobbying for him and like, right. right (laughs) (laughs) We don't want your help, Randy. We don't want your help. Okay. So she says this and then did you ever hear from her again or what was the follow-up? I heard from her a couple of times, you know, on other issues about masking or some school that was shut down in Buffalo that I had asked her for help with. I mean, she's very responsive. She's a very good politician. Um, But um, I knew that this proposal, like I, I, I just, I didn't have a ton of hope for her, you know, pushing it forward, but I did, did think that there was something we should do and produce because the invitation was out there. Sure. So, I called Tracy Beth Hogue, who's an epidemiologist in California and who had been part of the AFT roundtable and is very, very respected, has done a ton of research, uh, peer reviewed studies, and asked her if she would work with me on this proposal. And she was like, "Um, I would love to, but the proposal is take the masks off. This is just an upper respiratory infection that shouldn't be treated as anything different. And um, if we just look across, you know, the ocean to Denmark, where she's from and other, you know, Nordic countries, um, they've been normal for many months without any extra excess death. 
Um, we just we can't we can't pretend that something you know is a danger to kids when it isn't. Okay. Um, but regardless, we did start to work on some sort of paradigm that we could present because we realized this was also a public relations opportunity for us. Well, to well and also by then there was a lot of evidence on. Yeah particularly I'm asking. So it was probably also a matter of laying out the evidence, laying out the studies, which were ignored by certain people. Right. And then at one point I was thinking because of my background in food studies, we could do a a reverse mitigation pyramid, like a food pyramid, but a mitigation pyramid. And we could put like hand washing at the bottom. Like, I mean, silly things, but like something tangible that would make people feel good. And Tracy at the time rightly said, I don't want to give anybody anything to use as an off-ramp because if there's an off-ramp, there'll be an on-ramp and we need to just end this. So we kind of like hemmed and hawed. She organized a group of doctors because she has really good relationships with doctors all around the world um, to, to try to figure out what it is that we were going to be proposing. And this was November 2021. And it kind of like languished into December and people would ask, so what's going on? What are you proposing to Randy? And we were like, oh, we don't know. And then um, by late December, Tracy had become involved in something called the urge. Well, it wasn't even called that then. It was a toolkit that a virologist in the Bay Area had prepared for his own school district. He had previously worked for the CDC. Um, he was very like left-leaning progressive. So this was definitely coming from the right person and was the right message. And um, it was all about unmasking kids and getting kids back to normal. And we ended up calling it the Urgency of Normal Toolkit. She brought it to the group. Um, many of the doctors signed on and we released it in January 2022. So almost two years ago with a Zoom. And that was like attended by over a thousand people and a toolkit that was posted up online and that beca- and, and, and op-eds and uh, in the USA Today and Daily News and other newspapers. And that really gave it the push to really kind of change the narrative. And suddenly by March of, not suddenly, but by March of 2022, mask mandates started to fall away. Yeah, it was unbelievable in um, my area where I live in Northern Virginia, um, it took Governor Yunkin to actually get elected and issue an executive order. Um, and it, it, it was so awful, Natalia, because our local superintendents, our local school districts, there were seven of them. Um, and this is like, this is, you think about the Northern Virginia section mm-hmm. of, you know, this is the area closest to DC, L- Loudoun County, Prince William County. Um, and then of course, Arlington and Fair- Fairfax being the biggest school district in the nation and Arlington and Alexandria. After all of that, after all the fighting, we finally, parents finally get result, or results by electing a new governor and getting this executive order. And those seven districts sued the governor to keep kids masked. And this was in the spring of 2021. It was just astonishing to me. Now, of course, it never went anywhere. And they issued this big press release, like, we're fighting back, right? And of of course, we live in this extremely, extremely liberal area of Northern Virginia. And there was a lot of support for masking. And parents that objected were really, really bullied. And so at first they were like, we're suing, we're standing up for masking. And then, of course, the lawyers told them, and probably a judge or two said, like, you're never going to win. Like this is, you know, you're never like, this isn't going to go anywhere. So it, it quietly fell away. And then finally they, they let the kids 
go without masks. But it was up till the very end, the battle. Was it similar like that in your community or was it more once they were presented with the evidence, they sort of said, okay, we're going to lift the mask mandates? Um, no, there, uh, New York City is very blue as well. I mean, they once the mask mandates ended, it was March of 2022. You know, some kids took them off and some of them continued to wear them. Um, from what I saw, I mean, just like it wasn't the same type of battleground as it was in Virginia, but I think you guys had a lot of other things going on simultaneously and Fairfax and Loudoun County seemed to have been egregious on many other issues prior to this. So I think there was a lot of temper flaring. You also elected a Republican governor. We got Hochul. Um, so yeah, yeah. You know, at that point, I think that was right before the local Zeldin election, but we yeah. had a Democrat governor. So I, I don't think that this area, at least here in Manhattan, where I am, or even in New York has, has been much of a battleground, maybe more like Long Island, yeah. um, because Long Island tends to be red in a blue state. Um, and I think there were more of that, but not, not so much here. Well, the bottom line, though, is they there still was so much damage done by the shutdowns and the masking and the restrictions and the quiet lunches. I mean, I really did, as I was reading that list, I got a little verklempt because the locked playgrounds, the, the, the mask toddlers, the toddlers crying and pulling away their masks, it is it's 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 awful that I am sitting here saying I'm a little bit triggered because I'd. I, it's not that I'd forgotten anything. It's that it's, it's not, it's not as, it's not as present in my mind anymore. And that's a problem. Uh, there is something about forgetting that stuff or letting it fade. And some people do want it to fade and go away. And that's okay. That's, Don't worry. Our governor, our government won't let us because well, they're still shutting down. They're still trying to. Yes, Don't exactly. Worry about it. Yes, <laughs> but I, but I will say that is why your documentary is so important. And I want you to talk a little bit about your documentary, which is, is, is being produced by Restore Childhood. Isn't that correct? Yeah. So tell yeah. me about, tell me a little bit more about it. Um, so because I ended up working with all these doctors around the country, I had access to some really incredible people who had really changed the course of how we responded to this pandemic. It wasn't perfect. And certainly, you know, if Scott Atlas or Jay Bhattacharya had had their way early in, you know, 2020, um, 2021, you know, we wouldn't have even had to right. go through all this. I mean, you know, whenever people say, oh, they did the best they could with, with the information they had, it's like, nope, no, no. <laughs> they had a playbook. They, they chose to throw it out, you know, yeah. and that was Trump. And that was Trump. And that's why when they try to politicize it, you know, something that, and I'll talk about the documentary, but we, we had the good fortune of interviewing Scott Atlas yeah. and he squarely puts it at the feet of both administrations. Right. Trump did this. Right. So, right. Um, you know, anyway, but um, so because I had all these relationships and I had, had spoken to so many people during the course of the urgency of normal rollout, and it was insane in January of 22, when that came out, first of all, there were the accusations of dark money. The, the, the website was built um, by my husband. We, we did it like on, you know, whatever, a couple of hundred bucks that we had that we, we wanted to invest ourselves into this. So there was no dark money. The doctors never accepted a penny from anyone. It's not even an organization. There's no C3, C4, nothing, no LLC. Um, but um, as a result of that, we started 
restore childhood because we were told that somebody needed to fill this void and, and advocate for children. And so um, I had also gotten to meet so many parents around the country because parents were the ones who ultimately shared this toolkit. And we're so grateful to have this one repository of evidence-based advocacy at their hands, at, at their fingertips. They couldn't, you know, share articles, you know, all the time. Like David Zweig wrote some incredible articles. Um, Alex, uh, I forget her last name, um, who we also interviewed for our documentary, has written some, Gutentag, Alex Gutentag wrote some articles. Um, There were a lot of, several journalists who did a great job, but I think it's really hard just to share articles with people and people don't necessarily read them. The toolkit gave them everything they needed, like at their fingertips. And so, um, after, you know, I had met all these people and I spent so much time talking to them on the phone, I said, we have to preserve their stories because if we don't do that now, they're going to be so traumatized by it. They're never going to want to talk about it again. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of where the documentary came from. I started working with Stephanie Edmonds, um, who was a teacher who refused the vaccine mandate here in New York City and lost her job. And so she was jobless. I needed somebody to help me produce this video about masking. We did this little video in November of 21, I think, called The Mask Will Come Off Tomorrow, which got like, you know, like 100,000 views on on social media. And it was all like a little girl singing the Annie song, but it was about the mask because they never knew when the mask would come off. I mean, there were no promises. I never thought that they'd stay on as long as they did. Um, so we made the video and then I said, well, since you did such a great job on the video, what about the documentary? And she just jumped right into it. And so we started with interviewing the urgency of normal doctors. We just got in the car and drove to New Jersey and interviewed Kristen Walsh, who's a pediatrician, and then went to Maryland and interviewed Carol Vidal, um, who's a child psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins, and some families in the Baltimore area, which, I mean, horrible, like, so sad. Four kids out of school, like... Well, the Baltimore to- school system itself is, like, it deserves... There could be a 100 documentaries done on the disaster. Exactly. Exactly. So um, that's just how it started. It just started with us in a car and with the film equipment. And also, I was fortunate to have been introduced to Eli Steele um, early on. I actually didn't know who he was. Oh, but, he's wonderful. And so he agreed. to. I know him from Twitter. I don't actually personally know him, but I he is wonderful. Him. Yeah, he's a real good person. And uh, he agreed to mentor us and associate produce the documentary. And so he helped us figure out what equipment we needed, what we didn't need, you know, right. what the budget, you know. So he, he kind of helped steer us from the beginning. And then, you know, we were on our way. That's great. Um, and, and you know, I, first of all, what is the status of this documentary? Has it been released yet? No, no, we're still editing it. I mean, it's, okay. it's, it's a labor intensive thing and 60 interviews. Um, we're, we're going to release the first, we're going to release it in installments because we also don't want to miss the election cycle. So we'll, we'll release like the first hour or so um, in the first quarter of the year. And we're also working on doing a book um, uh, accompaniment to it because you can't get it into too many hands. Yeah. Um, and Brownstone, uh, Jeffrey Tucker will be publishing the book and the book will be kind of like a profiles and courage. Who should we have listened to? Well, we will talk yeah. offline, but maybe we can talk about a, uh, 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 sort of hosting a, 
um, a Northern Virginia viewing of this because uh, there's a few parents in Northern Virginia that would probably really love to watch this. I, I'd love your opinion on one other aspect of this whole thing. And that is Emily Oster, who I know you are probably, I, you may know her. Uh, I, I, I've interacted with Emily on several occasions and, and personally just think the world of Emily. And I think her books are her book. It's one of the books that's right up there and it's that blue book. Um, I have long admired her and I think that her work to, uh, to, to sort of um, hit back a little bit at, at the alarmists with pregnancy ha- has been incredibly useful, but I don't know if you saw her Atlantic article um, that came out last year where she said, amnesty for all these folks who were cause calling for masking. And she actually was, um, I wouldn't say she was, she did some really great statistical work uh, during COVID and, at ta- and, and trying to get people to calm down a little bit about COVID and look at the numbers and the real risks involved. But the call for amnesty for those who caused this really made me mad mm-hmm. because I really think it's important. First of all, we've gotten no apologies. Okay. Right. Has there been any contrition? Has there been any willingness to say we got this extraordinarily wrong and we have damaged a generation of kids? I, I see none of that. So what is your opinion on that call for amnesty? And when I say that, again, Emily Oster wrote this article, just for those who don't know, where she said like, hey, let's see, forgive and forget. Let's move on. I'm not saying we don't move on. I'm not saying we throw everyone in jail, but I still haven't gotten an apology or any admitting that they went too far. So anyway, so with that, what is your sort of opinion on that? Um, I like Emily as well. I was on a panel with her early on <clears throat> about open schools and um, I like her thoughts on parenting and, you know, try, I, I think of her often when she talks about like choosing which activities kind of fit in with your values. I think that's very, very, very helpful. Um, and uh, also not being alarmist or, I mean, Americans really get so alarmist about everything. Can I have a glass of wine? Can I have some raw cheese? Like yeah, yeah. Love that practical thing, the amnesty. I mean, I, I appreciate the sentiment. I also tried to like reach over with an olive branch, but calling for amnesty for people who shut down schools and mass kids is calling for a ceasefire on October 8th. It's, it's a non-starter. It's the same thing. It is absolutely a great analogy. And it is, again, in the absence, I am 100% for forgiveness. I am 100% about reconciliation and moving on. And let's focus on the, the, the kids now that need help with learning loss. Like I'm all for that. But in the absence of contrition, of recognition, of any sort of admitting that the the policies were wrong, what that says to me is they'll do it again. They'll do it again. And you said that, you know, you said, don't worry, Julie, that you forgot about this stuff because they'll remind us because they're constantly trying to reinstate these policies. That scares me. It scares me so much. And I think you and I, you know, we watched our kids go through that and, and it was, it was, it was terrible. So I, I agree with you on, um, on that. I, I don't really think that, I think the reactions to Emily's column there uh, made it very clear that most parents of all political stripes do not think we should just, you know, 
move on and forget it ever happened. I got to write an op-ed response um, in the New York Post to that column. Uh, oh, really? And also one thing I wanted to point out was beyond the closed schools, the conditions to which our children returned are completely unacceptable. Um, we just interviewed my nine-year-old about her thoughts on school closures and reopenings. And something she said to me um, really struck me about how lonely she felt when she was back in the classroom and what lunches were like, and um, just how devalued these poor children were. I mean, she couldn't even take a drink, and not just her, every other child in our in our New York City classrooms couldn't take a drink in the classroom when she was masked due to teacher contracts. They had to step outside and st- stand six feet apart. I mean, I don't even think you needed to do that at Rikers Island. Um, they couldn't have snacks. So like for some of the younger kids, there'd be a very long uh, period of time between school drop-off and breakfast and lunch, but they couldn't have snacks because they couldn't put their masks down during the class time because teachers had a contract that said that they didn't need to be exposed to, to unmasked children. I mean, that's something that um, it's something we need. I can to feel my veins like popping right now because mm-hmm. it just brings back all those. It was interesting to me that through all of this, the the ones treated the most cruelly were these children who couldn't defend themselves and particularly when they went back mm-hmm. to school. I'll never forget in Alexandria that the teacher, the kids were allowed to go back in this stifled way or this, this um, sort of a one or two day sort of in and out way. I'm not saying it correctly, but you get the point. And, yeah. and, um, and, but the teachers wouldn't go back. So what the teacher, what the district did, so and also the teachers had had insisted on being the first to be vaxxed, yeah, even above elderly, and mm-hmm. they were, and then they refused to go back to the classroom. You remember all this. You remember more than anyone. You know this more than <laughs> anyone. And then, but this is just like me remembering. But and then they hired. So the district hired essentially eighteen-year-old babysitters to sit in the classroom, who sat on their phones and distracted the kids in the classroom, and there was no one to help. And so, and then the teacher would kind of give a, a virtual lesson and the per, the minder in the classroom was too busy on their phone to help. And also they couldn't get close to the kids. I mean, it's wild. It's wild what they were doing. Um, and again, when I remember this, there needs to be accountability. There really does need to be um, thoughts on this. And I, and I don't think there's been enough, especially up, up in Congress. So I'm very grateful um, for what you're doing to capture um, these the, in a documentary form to capture what parents and what children had gone through um, during the COVID pandemic shutdown. So I, I thank you. And I can't wait to see the documentary and promote the documentary. And, um, and maybe, maybe we'll do something in the Northern Virginia region. That'd be great. We actually, we interviewed a number of people in Northern Virginia and in Charlottesville. Um, so Deborah Tisler in Fairfax, Martin Burry in Fairfax, you know, so we definitely will, would love to do that with you. Okay. Wonderful. Well, listen, Natalia, I can't thank you enough for all the work that you have done and you continue to do. It's vital. It's so important for children's health and please keep us updated on all your activities. Thank you so much for having me. The Bespoke Parenting Podcast with Julie Gunlock is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. You can send comments and questions to me at julie.gunlock at iwf.org. 
please help me out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Hang in there, parents, and go bespoke.